Stephen Wright uh, is uh, one of my favorite comedians, and, uh, and, and he has a lot of funny lines that you kind of have to hear him in context. But one of his lines says this, you can't have the world, where would you put it? He's not a guy that elicits a lot of heavy laughs <laughs> up front, but eventually you listen to him enough, he starts to sound funny. But here I am today to announce that, in fact, you can have the world. Yeah, the world can be yours. And for just $29.95, I will share the secrets <laughs> that will make the world, the entire world, your, your oyster. Or you can hang with me in Romans 4 for the next uh, warm half hour. In, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is elaborating on his great assertion that Jews and Gentiles uh, can be justified by faith in Christ alone, just as Abraham, our forefather, was. He has opened up to us the gracious promise of God in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. He has gone on to show in chapter 4 that this occurred well before Abraham was circumcised so that we know religious ceremonies are not the way. That is where we left off last Sunday. So today, we join with Paul to continue this line of thought. So many lessons are available to us from the life of Abraham, who was promised by God that he would be the father of a great multitude, indeed of many nations, and that he would bless all peoples, that he would inherit all the land around which he journeyed and lived. And so today, we come to uh, chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 17. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there, is also, there also is no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So our passage reminds us of the promises made to Abraham about 1,800 years before Paul wrote this. But this promise is regarded as highly relevant because it applied not just to the patriarch himself, but to his descendants. The Jewish people regarded themselves as the heirs to the promise, but the apostle has been trying in this portion of Romans to persuade us that the real heirs of Abraham are not Abraham's kindred by blood or by DNA, but by faith in the realm of the Spirit. Those who share the faith of Abraham are the partakers of the promises. But what are those promises? Many descendants he was promised. He was promised as well the land of Palestine, and he was promised a friendship with God. Verse 13 then surprises somewhat when it refers to the promise that the children of Abraham would in fact inherit the world. Ha, in Greek, it's the word cosmos, and so we come face to face with this seldom noted promise to believers like us that we get the world. We get the whole thing, all of it. So yes, you can have 
the world. So turn to your neighbor. Let them know. Tell them. Say, you can have it all. Go ahead. <laughs> this passage is not alone in affirming this. A few chapters later, chapter 8, verse 17, says that we are fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. In other words, what Jesus gets, we get, and there is no limit to what Jesus gets. Romans 8, verse 32, says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us what? All things. Wow. All things. Presumably... All good things are coming our way because of our connection with Jesus. Some folks with a certain view on the end times want to make a big deal about the land of Palestine. They even think that Israel going back there 75 years or so ago uh, is greatly significant in terms of biblical prophecy. Debate over that. I, I doubt that that's the case. But the promise of the land was really just a foreshadowing of the greater promise of God to give us the whole world. Remember Matthew 5, verse 5? <laughs> Matthew 5, 5, the Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit the earth. Not, not the land, but the earth. All of it. The land promise in Abraham becomes the earth promise in Christ. There is plenty more on this. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is heir of all things. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21 Paul says, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. The apostle writes as if this is a present reality, but we understand him to mean this is more precisely to be understood as a promise. This inheritance, this inheritance that we are coming into possession of in due time, this is, this is a wow to ponder what God has promised. And I need to remind you just who the heirs are. Again, all believers in Jesus, the spiritual descendants of the man of faith. So remember what Paul said. We looked at this back in chapter 2, verse 29. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. We studied that already. Someday we're going to study Romans 9. And verse 8, if the Lord tarries. Uh, there it says, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. John Piper writes an editorial uh, about, uh, or he writes about an editorial that was in his local paper up in Minneapolis about uh, Rosh Hashanah. That's the Jewish New Year celebration. And the editorial uh, was in response to a Southern Baptist initiative that called Christians during the holy days to pray for the Jewish people to receive Jesus as Messiah and be saved. The editorial in the paper said this was arrogant of these Christians. It quoted Abraham Heschel who wrote, Christians must abandon the idea that the Jews must be converted, end quote. Well, this idea that Jews need to trust Jesus too is, uh, he said, one of the greatest scandals in history. Wow, end quote from Abraham Heschel. I, 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 you think about our capacity for overstatement seems to have no end. 
I mean, the Holocaust was bad, but now these awful Christians want to lead Jews to put their faith in Christ. What a scandal. But oh, may we see this actually occur. Still, what seemed to go on in the apostolic age was this. The Gentiles, by faith, were becoming Jews, and the Jews, by their unbelief, were becoming lost as Gentiles. And Paul was grieving for the Jews, but rejoicing in his privilege of announcing to the Gentiles their newfound inheritance as sons and daughters of Abraham. So a couple of months back, Mark Sharpneck uh, came to me holding a fax, <laughs> a fax uh, that had come in. Uh, we never get faxes around here anymore. I don't, did they even use fax? Somebody, I guess, is using a fax. We still have the machine, apparently. We haven't tossed that. But this fax contained a letter for me from a law firm in Canada informing me uh, that a third cousin of mine had died without an heir and had left to me $13 million <laughs> if I would just contact them. <laughs> Turns out they had been looking for me for months. How about that? Uh, Janie, Janie Koska, our former receptionist, she also got a fax on the very same day with the similar message, but she's only getting $8 million. <laughs> Still, it got me thinking of uh, this fax. What if something like this happened for real? Well, that would be pretty cool. Uh, well, here Paul is announcing to Jewish believers and Gentile believers, that we are heirs of what? All things. Now, if there's more than one heir, you know how this works. You have to divide it up. But all things, I mean, infinity divided by 10 billion is still what? Infinity. Correct me if my math is wrong there. Uh, so there is plenty to go around. Turn to your neighbor now and say, we be rich. Go ahead. <laughs> so a year ago, Jerry Richardson uh, says to me after service, he comes up and he says, uh, he says, Pastor, um, what's the next thing you know? And I, I looked at him funny. I had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, uh, next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Uh, okay, yeah, that was a line in a theme song for an old television show some of us remember quite well, uh, and I mean, today is like episode number one in the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, for those too young to know, there was a comedy about a poor Tennessee family that finds oil on their farm, their property, and become instantly very, very wealthy, back when millions was a lot of money, you know, and, and instantly wealthy, and so they pack up their truck, and they move to Hollywood, where everybody said that's where rich people go to live, and the hilarity begins as they adjust to their newfound riches, right? Uh, you see, they were not able to instantly start living like people of means. They continued 
to do their hillbilly things like hunt for their dinner and make their own soaps and so on. It provided a decade's worth of entertainment for Americans back in the 60s and 70s. But it also, I thought, uh, it serves a, as a picture of the Christian life. How so? What are we doing? What is Christian growth about? Well, one perspective on it is it's about learning to live like a child of the king who has been adopted off of the streets. We are now fellow heirs with Christ. And the more we grasp that, the more we will live in His joy, the more we will live in His power. All right, time to get back to Paul's argument here as he covers for us the means for becoming an heir. And he says once again that it is not through your performance, it's not through your ancestry. He says the promise comes to us not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For of those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. He sets these two paths against each other. In the context of Romans 4, I believe, through the law has particular reference to the ceremonial law, which included circumcision, but it could also reference the idea that a hearty obedience to the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, is the way of obtaining the promise. In either case, he says, no, that's not it. That kind of law-keeping gets you nowhere. I thought of a Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse offered a nice illustration of this. He notes, another California illustration here, he, in California you'll find the highest point in the continental United States. You know what that is, Ben? Huh? Mount Whitney. You ever climbed Mount Whitney? No, you haven't done that. <laughs> Mount Whitney. And the lowest point in the continental United States, which is Death Valley. Barnhouse compared... Um, the state of California to our lost state as sinners, a comparison that in recent years has become more fitting, I suppose. But he noted that it's impossible to get out of California by, by going up, unless you have a spaceship. But you can't get out of California by going up. A person who starts in Death Valley and travels up to sea level and then on to Mount Whitney, that person may feel he has made happy progress, and he has in terms of elevation, but he's still in California. Similarly, he says what we need is not a higher moral elevation, but we need a change of state. We need to be moved out of our lost state in which we are under wrath into a saved state, and the only, that only happens when one is made alive by the Spirit and turns to Jesus. So one of the reasons Paul puts forth by which we know that righteousness cannot come through either circumcision or rule-keeping is that Abraham... He was declared righteous 14 years before he ever received the sign of that righteousness, which was circumcision, and 430 years before the law was ever given at Mount Sinai. Was there any law before the Ten Commandments? Well, sure there was. There was. There was... Uh, <laughs> There was the internal law written on the hearts of those made in the image of God. There were commandments as well. There were commandments given to Adam and Eve. There was commandments given to Noah, commandments given to Abraham. There was a great deal already understood before the Ten Commandments, but what did all these laws result in for human beings, including the Ten Commandments? Well, verse 15 tells us, the law brings about 
Wrath. It resulted in wrath, not because of some flaw in the law, but because of some flaw in us. We messed up, and the law has the role of drawing lines for us, lines that we obviously trespass. I was at the uh, Burkholder house uh, some weeks back for youth group, well, months ago now, I guess. Ben has a, uh, he has a basketball hoop in his backyard, or in kind of the driveway area, and he has, a, he has a nice, it's nice, the rim's straight, he has a net on it, way to go, Ben, keeping the, I get very distressed with the rims that are bent and nets that are, you know, they, but he has, he has a good setup there, uh, and, uh, but as usual, in a, in a backyard kind of basketball court, there were no boundary lines, so me and the kids, we were playing a game, and everything was technically inbounds. That's what I said. They, they were like, oh, that's out of bounds. No, everything's inbounds. There's no lines. Even if the ball bounced across the street, it was inbounds. Now, you can do that in basketball more easily than in other sports like football or baseball where lines are yet more critical to the game. Those lines... Uh, that you see there, they're important. They show when you or the ball are in bounds or out of bounds. The law of God performs that service for Christians. It does not perform the service of keeping the ball in bounds. It simply reveals what is true. So then we get to verse 16, which I love, for it says, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Not by merit, not by law, not by sacrament. The key words are grace in faith, right? Paul keeps pounding this theme, and I think he does because the impulse to want to earn our way to heaven is deeply ingrained in many, in, maybe in most of us, and this flows out of our pride. Now, some of you will know who Steve Young is, one of the great quarterbacks in the history of football. His greatest success was with the San Francisco 49ers back in the 90s, right? Uh, Steve's an interesting guy. His autobiography is a, is a terrific read because he lets you into his mind. And he has a very peculiar mind, partly due to his strict upbringing as a Mormon. His last name is what? As in Brigham. He's one of Brigham's great-great-grandkids. A lot of those out there, Brigham Young had 55 wives. So a lot of grandkids. <laughs> Steve Young was one of them. But my favorite story from the book is about a time when he was the backup quarterback to Joe Montana. He was brought in from Tampa Bay to be the backup to Joe, the future Hall of Famer. Uh, and so uh, for a few years there, Steve hardly played. He stood on the sidelines and held a clipboard and, uh, and watch Joe Montana win game after game and championship after championship. And uh, so that was Steve's reality. He didn't enjoy it much at all. One day he's riding in a car, driving his car, and his best friend, who was the center on the team, was riding with him. And his friend, for whatever reason, opened the glove compartment, and he noticed in Steve's glove compartment a bunch of checks. And so he pulled these checks out, and he looked at them, these were his paychecks from the 49ers. He had in his glove compartment $4 million in uncashed, undeposited checks. 
My daughter Sharon's here. I, <laughs> I fuss at her for not depositing her checks in time. This guy had four million bucks sitting around in his glove compartment, and his friend said, what is this? Why, why aren't you depositing your checks? And he said, well, I'm not playing. I don't think I deserve the pay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, that's pretty strange. As he saw it, though, he had not earned it, therefore he couldn't enjoy it. But a lot of folks bring that mindset into their disposition toward the Lord. They just will not accept grace. But the refusal to do that, it's far more foolish than Steve Young not depositing his checks, far more deadly. If we are to be right with God, it is going to be by looking to His grace, His unmerited favor, and trusting His promise. Grace through faith. You see, there are a variety of ways by which one can become wealthy. Let's compare becoming wealthy to becoming righteous. Wealthy in spiritual terms, wealthy in material terms. Does that work? Uh, what are the ways that people become wealthy? How do you become rich? Well, one way is that uh, you're born into your wealth, right? Uh, does that work in the spiritual realm? Not, not really. Uh, it helps, but it guarantees nothing. Paul has been telling his Jewish friends that their great heritage does not make them righteous. What's another way to gain wealth? Well, um, you know, there's uh, work hard, work smart. You make money, you save the money, you earn it. Is that the Jesus way? <laughs> Again, no. That is way outside our abilities. So what is another way to become wealthy? Ah, you can marry into it. My dad often told me as I grew up, son, it's just as easy to fall in love with a rich girl <laughs> as with a poor girl. Some folks are very intentional about this. If you read Jane Austen books, I think there was a lot of concern about marrying into money there. How does this approach fit the gospel? Well, curiously, not too bad. <laughs> when you marry someone, you make a lifelong commitment, heart commitment to that person. What is theirs becomes yours, and the two of you become as one, right? That is very much what happens for us as Christians. We're like the poor girl, lifted up from our poverty, blessed to marry the prince. Cinderella is a story that is sort of a gospel metaphor. Jesus proposes marriage to us, and when we say yes, guess what happens? All of his goodness, all of his wealth, all of his vast stores of righteousness are credited to our accounts. Well, let's finish by thinking about what this means for us. First, it has, it has to mean joy. Oh my, what bliss is ours. We are made one with the one whom we love, who loves us, who is the heir of all things. Chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to get to that in a few weeks. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Say this with me. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. All belongs to Christ. Christ belongs to us. Are you rich, brother? Are you rich, sister? Oh, yeah, we are. Many reasons here for joy. Secondly, this means that we can be secure in our affliction. Until we are done with this life, we're still in the stage of the Cinderella story where we are living with the wicked stepmother and those obnoxious stepsisters, right? 
But how much more bearable that season is when we know how the story is going to end. So you can persevere. You can love your enemies. You are the heir, and your prince is coming. Thirdly, this all means that we can take risk in ministry. You know, things are going to turn out well, ultimately, so you can boldly set forth to serve Christ without fear. That could mean going far away to serve Jesus. It could mean speaking to a neighbor for Jesus. It could mean trying to love some kids for Jesus. In Romans 12, it says, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation. All those things are related to knowing that we are heirs of all things in Christ. And finally, fourthly, this truth of how God or how we are made joint heirs of all things with Christ, it inclines us to give glory to God. Barnhouse writes this after saying that some, someone who seeks righteousness through the law is walking in darkness. He writes this, but the man who walks by the promise of grace walks in the broad day. His footsteps echo against the light of the promises of God, and he feels himself to be surrounded by the angels of blessing. His eager steps press forward to claim the blessings. If he stops, he finds himself in green pastures and beside still waters. When he walks again, he is in the paths of righteousness. He hastens on to the golden city, and the brightness of its prospect takes away any sense of fatigue that might naturally rise from the length of the road. And then the road ends. He finds that he has been supplied with grace at every step and brought on to the triumph of life eternal, end quote. And when that is your story, you give Christ your all. And you give Him all the glory. Rejoice in hope, be secure in affliction, minister boldly, give glory to God. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank You for Your gospel. We rejoice in that gospel today. Lord, if we are in the midst of affliction and some of us are feeling it today, others of us will feel it tomorrow. We know it's part of this life. We pray that you remind us that we are heirs of all things so that we might endure our momentary light afflictions with grace and patience. Lord, because you have made us victorious, we would minister boldly in your good name. And obviously, Father, because all this comes to us from you and your grace we give you the glory and the honor and the blessing. Thrill us by these truths. Send us forth in freedom to minister boldly, to walk in security, and to rejoice always, even as we recognize there is much in this side of glory for which we can lament and about which we praise. So for all these graces, we call on you in Jesus' good name. Amen.